This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to discuss uh, one of the most difficult and probably most important issues that we confront uh, during this pandemic, and that's the question of mental health. How uh, do people preserve their mental health uh, during uh, periods of quarantine and stress? How do we understand mental health and how do we address mental health concerns for citizens and particularly for healthcare workers and others on the front lines? Uh, we have with us uh, the person who I think is probably one of the very best people in the world to talk to about this. He's also a great friend and an award-winning teacher. Uh, this is Dr. Steven Sonnenberg. He's a professor of psychiatry at the Dell Medical School. He's a professor of instruction at the Steve Hicks School of Social Work here at UT and the School of Undergraduate Studies. He's also the director of a really exciting program that I've had the opportunity to, to sit in on a few times, program in the humanities, healthcare, and advocacy, which is uh, part of uh, an interdisciplinary uh, set of, t- of courses that Steve has put together. He's a fellow of the Frank M. and Dorothy H. Conklin Endowment for Medical Ethics. And I could go on and on. He's basically involved in everything important that's happening at the intersection between health and society today. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. Uh, before we ta- turn to uh, uh, to Dr. Steve, uh, we have uh, Mr. Zachary Suri here, of course, and he has written a scene-setting poem for us today. What is the title of your poem, Zachary? For the Healers. Let's hear it. Dear Healers, forgive me if I see you only as the humanitarian beacons of sanity and not as ordinary people who walk the empty subway platforms to save lives. Forgive me if I never mentioned my gratitude before, I found myself holed up in my bedroom alone. Forgive me if I sometimes wish that I could just get back to school. Forgive me if I can't clap and sync with everyone else. Forgive me if you saved a life today whom I infected with my sleeve a week ago. Dear healers, forgive me if all of what I know about emergency healthcare comes from MASH. If I can only describe what you do with divine terms. Forgive me, doctors, nurses, mask makers, if sometimes I forget that you have to become numb to the sight of the suffering. Forgive me if sometimes I forget that you have to watch more sick flow in and watch bodies waiting for the van flow out. Forgive me if I forget that you don't shoot the bullet, but you have to stare into the jagged torso and not cry. Forgive me if I could only look away from the photograph of you touching your child through the glass. Forgive me if I buy up masks and hand sanitizer, my paranoia, and your lost PPE. Dear healers, Forgive me if all I can understand about what doctors do comes from my fifth grade Grey's Anatomy coloring textbook. Forgive me if I ever think you are just mechanics of the human body. Forgive me for when I thought you were just doctors. And when now you are just doctors, exhausted, sleeping in the garage, too determined to wait for the trauma. Forgive me for not seeing this. That's very moving, Zachary. Uh, What is your poem about? My poem is really about... um, what it's like to be to, to be someone like me who never really thought about doctors or medicine that much, and then suddenly to be in the midst of a health crisis and realize how important uh, the people on the front lines are and what a tough job they really have. Yes, yes. S- Steve, how should we begin to think about uh, those on the front lines and what they're going through? I think we've all watched in New York City, people are you know cheering every night at 7 p.m., 
but 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 how do we understand what what the healthcare givers like you are going through? Well, first of all, uh, I, I think this really does demonstrate that uh, the kind of education that we offer health future healthcare providers really uh, really does encourage them to be truly dedicated. There's a, a lot of talk today about how broken our healthcare system is, how much financial motivation seems to be uh, a, a huge problem uh, in, in really preventing us from developing uh, a more equitable system without disparities. And I do think that those cultural influences are there. But in this crisis, we've really seen that the kinds of thoughts that people have when they apply to medical school, when they apply to nursing school, when they apply to social work school, when they uh, apply to be pharmacists, all of these, all of the, the healthcare professions, that, that when people say they want to help people, they really mean it. Yes. And in a crisis like this, it comes out because I have no doubt that there is nobody on the front line who isn't scared. There is nobody on the front line who, who, who is not aware that she or he or they can die, but they're there and they don't stop. Right. And that, and that actually in itself uh, is, a, is a very hopeful thought about what might emerge from this crisis, because I do think that the crisis really exposes the, the very dark underbelly of our lack of an equitable healthcare system in this country. And I do think the, uh, there's going to be a, a, a huge demand that after this crisis is over, we really do create a more equitable system. And the providers now will be on the front lines of demanding that. They're not going to sit by and let themselves be controlled by large corporate interests. They're going to demand that they work in an equitable system. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's, that's going to be uh, a silver lining in what is a very set, a set of very dark clouds. So I think we're seeing the best in the healthcare providers. So we hear a lot about how uh, fighting the coronavirus is like a war. And we all know a lot about how uh, combat can uh, affect people uh, psychologically and can leave long-lasting trauma. What, what will this do to the mental state of, of our healthcare providers? Well, that, that is a very, very good question. Um, but I, I, I'm going to... I'm going to change the question a little bit and say, what is that going to do to the mental health of our healthcare providers and everybody else? Because yes. I think really we are all in the same boat. And uh, one of the things that I have great concern about is that we are now part of the population of a world that is being severely damaged, severely traumatized by this. Uh, I, I suppose it's true that in 
certain parts of the world, people are constantly experiencing trauma because of poverty, because of, uh, of nutrition, lack of food, uh, because of rampant disease. But worldwide now, I think, the, I think the population of the earth is going to come out of this very, very damaged psychologically. And you might say that, uh, uh, you know, on Earth Day, uh, we, might, uh, we might say that the population of the Earth is going to suffer from PTSD. And I do believe that. I, I, I think that we're going to encounter the after effects of very severe trauma and people are, are going to be uh, very vulnerable, as traumatized people are, to all sorts of psychological complications, in addition to the direct effects of trauma, which we're familiar with. So I'm very concerned about what we're going to be like as a, as a world when we come out of this. Now, I, I, I just said that I think that there can be positive effects, such as a more empowered set of healthcare providers who are going to demand a more equitable system in which they will work. But I also think we're going to have many, many people who, who are, are terribly damaged. And part of the development of that equitable system is that we're going to have to be sensitive to the damage that has been done psychologically. We're going to have to be sensitive to how vulnerable and fragile we human beings really are in the face of, of, of severe stress. And, uh, and I think we're going to have to be prepared to provide very, very elaborate mental health services uh, for the population of the world. Uh, and, and this is something that, that really concerns me because I think that, that because mental health damage is often silent, it's, not, it's, it's usually not dramatic, uh, e even frankly when somebody commits suicide because they're so traumatized and depressed that they don't want to go on living, that in general is not dramatic. Uh, it's, it's tragic, but it isn't dramatic. So I, I think that perhaps the priorities that some people have, that we have to restore the economy, that we have to open up stores, that we have to get, uh, get the professional teams back on the court and back on the field and, and pack thousands of people into stadiums. You know, uh, frankly, uh, I think that's going to take precedent over focusing on the mental health of the world's population. And, and this is going to be a problem that will have vast negative consequences. Steve, that's so compelling, uh, but also so complex, right? It, it, can, you, can you give us a little more of a sense of what the traumatic effects will be? Because we, we tend to, as you say, diminish those when we talk about these issues. Yeah, well, first of all, um, let me say something about trauma, uh, because everybody knows about post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. But there's a, there's a, a, a complementary phenomenon 
uh, it's perhaps a little bit controversial. It's called post-traumatic strain disorder. Uh, hmm. It isn't officially in the nomenclature. But if you think of a suspension bridge, like the Brooklyn Bridge, there are cables that hold that up. And if you put all the cables in at the same time, eventually the, the, uh, the steel, the molecules in the steel of the cable lose their elasticity. And if you put all the cables in at the same time, or, or let's say their, 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 their resiliency, uh, if you put all the steel cables in at the same time and don't do anything, eventually the bridge will literally collapse into the water. So what happens is the cables are rotated. And uh, at a certain period of time, one of the many cables is changed. A couple of weeks later, perhaps, and I don't know the exact schedule, another cable is changed mm. so that all of the cables don't wear out at the same time. That's right. strain. And, and the human psyche can be strained in that way. So most of us will not necessarily be touched by a death. Most of us will not be on the front line having, having patients die. But we're all undergoing a tremendous amount of strain. We're all frightened. We're all worried. We don't know. And I'm sorry, that's my house phone. And it's going to pick up, but I... I uh, so we're all going to be, be strained. We're all going, going to experience high levels of fear, of doubt. We don't know what's going to happen to our futures. We don't know whether our savings will be restored. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen to the education of our children or if we're young ourselves, our own education. All of this uncertainty constitutes a kind of strain. So in the end, we're going to, and, and chronic strain does the same thing as acute stress. The, mm. the after effects or the consequences are the same. So we know about post-traumatic stress disorder. We know about people who have flashbacks, about people who are, are hypervigilant, about people who can't sleep well, about people who withdraw from social contact whose loving relationships are corroded and eroded and destroyed. And if we don't pay very careful attention to this, we are going to have a population that, again, a world's population that is going to be experiencing high levels of anxiety, high levels of depression. Many people will be unable to work. Uh, many people will withdraw from uh, society, from social contact. This is a worst case scenario that I believe is the, is the likely outcome of all this. So if you have a depressed, psychologically depressed population, you have people who don't interact effectively and successfully in the social sphere. You don't have people capable of, of embracing each other, of loving each other, of collaborating together. And I, I, I actually do think, in a strange way, uh, the, the, the exception may be the healthcare providers who, as 
in, as impaired as they will be by the stress that they're under will perhaps be like the veterans of Vietnam who right. were traumatized by that war, but who came together and demanded justice for themselves. Right. First demanding right. an end to the war, then right. demanding proper health care for veterans with PTSD. They were energized. I'm afraid that most people will not be energized in that same way, and that th- that we will we will have a, a very depressed population. Um, and uh, I believe that this crisis is going to go on for a good solid year and a half. I don't think I think we're a year and a half away, and I, I'm very very concerned that we're we're going to have a crippled a psychologically crippled population. And in its worst case, young people will not be achieving in the way that they need to uh, in the educational realm. Right. Uh, people in the next next cohort, a, a bit older, will not be achieving in the way people need to in order to establish professional careers, in order to establish vocations, in order to create, to marry and create families. I think there could be huge impairments in all these spheres. I mean, we are not going to come out of this the same as we were before. As you're uh, talking... Well, by the way, I realize I'm painting a very dismal picture, but that, well, doesn't, that doesn't mean we can't do something about it. Right, and we're going to get to that, Stephen, and I think you're, you're painting a dismal, but also a, 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 a picture that's that's... That we need to hear, we need to we need to think about this, and that's why that's why we were so excited to have you on the podcast, um, St- Steve. What you're describing reminds me, as a historian, of what we saw in Europe after World War One, um, mm-hmm. where the term shell shock comes from. Uh, Thomas Mann, the great novelist, right, famously writes of Europe after the war as as, as, a, as a giant insane asylum in many mm-hmm. respects. Um, is that is that an appropriate historical reference for what you foresee? Yes, absolutely. And, and and what are the lessons that we take from that? Maybe this then transitions us into what what we should do or what we should be preparing for in light of of what sounds to me like a very sensible uh, anticipation of where we're going. Well. I do think self-awareness and self-consciousness is extremely important. Um, you know, uh, the previous time I spoke with with you and Zachary, uh, I, I I was unaware that I, that the discussion would would start with a poem, um, and um, I, I of course I've become a fan of Zachary's, and I. I I think that one of the things that's so remarkable about you, Zachary, is that you are you are remarkably self-aware and you are remarkably able to put that self-awareness into words. I mean, I think that your poems, and, and I wonder if you would agree with this, but I think your poems are very personal. They really speak to your growing awareness of your own humanity of, of who you are as a person and, and of the challenges you face and of, of your own frailties, which we all have. Um, so I'm going to ask a question because I want to make sure I'm on the right track here, but Zachary, 
Do you think that's a fair characterization? Yes, and I think that that kind of personal poetry and um, and literature trying to explore ourselves can be really powerful in bringing us through a crisis like this, of reminding us what's important. Uh, well, that, that's exactly what I have in mind. Um, you know, I am a great believer in the importance of humanities education for future healthcare providers, and that, in fact, uh, the, uh, the problem we have, I mean, before this pandemic, we've had a crisis among healthcare providers of disillusionment, of, yes. of, uh, of burnout, of depression. And um, one of the things we know about, uh, about healthcare providers is that those who are connected to the humanities actually are more resilient than those who are not. Those who read, those who write, those who uh, go to the theater, who go to museums, who appreciate nature and its wonders, which I consider to be a, a part of the humanities, um, the, the, the natural environment, the beauty of the natural environment, and the ability to appreciate that. Those, those providers do better. And there's a lesson to be learned there, because uh, I, I think what we what we need to do through this crisis and after this crisis is encourage our society and the entire world to pay more attention to these great gifts we have received from some of the most creative minds, the brightest minds, the most sensitive minds throughout history. Thomas Mann being one of them, by the way. And I think we need to try to create a culture that is self-reflective and, and a culture that uh, gives us time to be self-reflective, gives us time to contemplate, gives us time to learn, uh, to take in the lessons of, of great observers of the human condition and, and to become observers of our own condition and the condition of the people around us. <clears throat> I mean, what I'm really saying is we need to create in a very self-conscious way a culture that is contemplative. And then I think a part of that will be the more professional side. That is, uh, and by the way, I, I, on behalf of the poets, I think I should say that one of the professions that we need to really value as we go through this crisis and after are the poets. We need, right. we need to hear their poetry. Uh, we need to, to really appreciate it. We need to take it in. And frankly, I happen to think that providing mental health services does have a lot in common with poetry. Uh, I think uh, what, what a, a mental health professional does that is valuable is create a healing narrative. And we have to have a culture in which professionals like me, alongside professionals like you, Zachary, uh, and alongside professionals like you, Jeremy, historically. I thought you forgot about me, Steve. <laughs> you no, know, but, 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 but we need, we need to, we need to appreciate the lessons of history. Uh, 
Yes. We need yes. people like you to guide us to Thomas Mann, English professors too. But yes. I'm not being facetious. I mean, we, we really need to, to value uh, the way we can think our way through this and feel our way through this. And Steve, you, you have taught me so much about the, the links between uh, narrative and mental health. And I, and I think uh, this is a point Thomas Mann himself made, right, that, you, that, that human beings need to feel connected to something. They need to feel rooted. But how do we do that? On the scale that you're describing, when when we have a, a a global mental disorder, in a sense, how do we how do we do that? How do we start? Well, that's very complicated, um, and I suppose um, I'm going to uh, uh, get political now. Um, first of all, I think we have to have empathetic leadership from the top. Yes. Everywhere. Yes. Um, And, um, you know, um, and and by the way, when I say political, this, this is not a matter of red, blue, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, you know, um, President Bush uh, and Mayor Giuliani, were uh, purveyors of empathy after 9-11. Yes. Um, We need that kind of modeling and leadership from the very top. We also need to uh, empower our network of mental health providers with the tools they need to reach out to the population. You know, right now, uh, we have a large population of mental health providers, at least in the United States, who um, actually are terribly, terribly underpaid. They're expected to do a lot, and they don't get paid for it. Very often, they get frozen out by insurance companies that, after they provide services, tell them they're not going to get paid. Um, we need to create a healthcare system where all of the people who are capable of being what I'm going to call purveyors of empathy, purveyors of understanding, encouragers of the development of self-understanding and narrative. We need to create a world in which these people are empowered to do their job and frankly, where they don't have to worry about uh, uh, working 60 hours a week to pay their rent and make ends meet. I'm thinking of the licensed professional counselors who are terribly mistreated by the insurance companies. Now, I I think we have a potential workforce in this country of healthcare providers who really could do uh, a a lot and and also, uh, uh, and really directly provide a lot of services. Now, yes. there's, there's another, uh, another lesson to be learned here from my own experience. When I was first starting out uh, in healthcare in the uh, 1960s, I started medical school in 1961. When I was first starting out, one of the innovations that had been made in mental health was the development of what we 
refer to as indigenous workers. And by indigenous, that means people in the community who uh, have a certain natural inclination and ability to be empathetic. Uh, And these people were brought in uh, and trained and often were the backbone of the staff of state mental hospitals. Uh, We also saw this after Vietnam, when Vietnam veterans themselves formed peer support groups. And it was a federally funded program for that. And I actually was was involved uh, on the National Advisory Board of that. I mean, we were really using people to help each other. We really created, in the Vietnam veteran community, a helping community. We're also, we also see that with, uh, with the uh, uh, NAMI, the organization uh, of, of many people who have experienced mental problems who come together and not only advocate for themselves, but encourage peer groups that are healing and helpful. Now, I'm speaking about the United States. I, I think we could do that in the United States. I also think, by the way, that uh, we have a cadre of uh, religious people who potentially could be helpful. I was going to ask about that, actually. Yeah, Uh, I I, I think our 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 priests, our nuns, our our uh, uh, ministers, our rabbis, our imams. religious leaders of every faith group in this country uh, uh, could be brought together in a coalition to help provide these kinds of services. And I think that faith-based organizations, including congregations, um, could certainly be one source where this kind of of health, of return to health is promoted. Now, I think one thing that's problematic there is that within the faith-based community, we have people who deny science. And that's a problem that's going to have to be addressed because uh, we do not want to have warfare within faith-based communities uh, about whether uh, for example, it is appropriate to have social distancing now or whether it is appropriate to uh, uh, conduct church services o- over uh, Zoom. Um, and, and, and I think I, I think we really need to work hard to create uh, a cohesive and coherent science, respectful, faith-based community. And, and we are, by the way, we are seeing outbreaks in faith-based communities that do deny science. So that, that's, that's another problem. I don't want to make that a major focus of what I'm saying, but I do think uh, faith-based communities can be part of the healing effort and should be part of the healing effort. Steve, this is, this is so helpful. I mean, you really put this in context for us so well. What role, and I think this, this will be our sort of closing question, and it always is our closing question, what can we do? What role should citizens play? If, you, if we're thinking about not just getting through the next year and a half, 
but also trying to think forward as members of communities and, and as, as scholars, as, as business people, as, as members of families. What should we be thinking about in, in, as we're looking forward within these spaces? What, what are the things we should be doing now? Well, before I answer that, I want to say that most of what I've said focuses on what I think is possible in the only country I really know well, which is the United States. Right. But given what I know about other parts of the world, and I have traveled widely, I, I think uh, with, with a perhaps modification of terminology, what I've described is possible in, in most parts of the world. I am I agree. Particularly, I agree. I'm particularly concerned about parts of the world where there are huge populations uh, living in abject poverty, where, where uh, access to this kind of thinking is, is rare because people are really just trying to live from day to day. And, and, I, and I think there, uh, this is where the World Health Organization, the United Nations uh, really needs to step in. I mean, Doctors Without Borders uh, is an example of an organization that, that will send people to places where uh, there is inadequate care. So I think we need to organize and think in those terms. Uh, I, I think we have to be very respectful of the fact. And I mean, if we don't know now that we live in one world uh, where uh, we are all connected to each other and where we, we live or die together, uh, we, we haven't learned anything. And I think we do know this and we do see this. So I do think that we, we need to extend this to the entire world. But you ask what we can do as citizens. And, and frankly, um, I, I think we need to first think about these things. It, it, you know, if I, if I do sound as though uh, I'm, I'm, and I, I, I think I do and I hope I do, if I'm making sense, if I'm putting this into words that bring together a lot of ideas and make sense, it's because I think about this a lot. And, you know, uh, sure, I have a professional background and, and I am a, a university teacher and I've taught in medical schools for decades. But, you know, we all have perspectives, we all have ideas, we all have unique experiences. And we have to be respectful of each other and encourage each other to think and then to speak out. I mean, I really believe we need to develop grassroots organizations where people speak about these issues and share these ideas. And from there, the roots spread and, and, and we really can create a culture that, that can change. Yes, um, and then then the next thing we do is we have to demand change in our leaders, and we have to demand that our leaders be thoughtful and caring and loving and sensitive. And in the world today, because of threats to established groups in power, we are seeing we're seeing this all over the world. 
uh, a, uh, a turn toward authoritarian leaders who simply are uh, empathy is not part of their black bag. They do not open their black bag and pull out a stethoscope. They pull out anger and hate and and uh, rejection and uh, scapegoating. And we really have to demand a change at the top. Yep. And, and I understand that that sounds very political, but um, it's it is what I think. I think we it, we need to work from the grassroots, and I think we need to demand a, a change at the top. And and it's it's actually a, a wonderfully optimistic note to close on because if we go back to the analogy that we've been playing with here, the historical analogy of the period after World War One, you could see the world coming out of that crisis uh, and going in two different directions. Right there was the authoritarian direction. But then there was also the direction that's actually inspired our podcast long before this pandemic, which which was what Franklin Roosevelt represented, which was an effort not simply to bring new programs from the top, but to inject an energy in grassroots activism and grassroots organization. As many historians have commented and many novelists noted, including, including Saul Bellow, the, the New Deal was many New Deals and many communities and groups coming together to uh, bring their communities together and, and provide healing, sustenance, and empathy at the local level. And Franklin Roosevelt encouraged that from the national level. And, and, and that might be the right way for us to think about moving forward right now. And that, that should be a vision that empowers and inspires all of us to, to begin in our communities, Steve, to be having these conversations and, and to recognize and validate the damage that's been done to people and, and the ways we have to work together to heal, not to forget or deny, but to heal that damage. Uh, I, I think you've, you've really given us a real foundation for thinking about that. Zachary, does, does this resonate with, with young people stuck at home like you, stuck with your parents and stuck online? Is, is, is this a resonant, uh, inspiring vision that, that Steve has been able to, to come to after a pessimistic opening, I might say? <laughs> For sure. I, I think that, uh, that, that my generation will not be the same after this crisis, that we'll come out of this looking at uh, the opportunities we have, um, our education and healthcare workers in a completely different way. And I think there's a real opportunity there. There's also the danger that we, we that we fall behind and that there's a, a, a psychological crisis that doesn't get addressed. But I think we have the opportunity and uh, we have the ability to fix this and to turn it into something that can be a real force for good. Steve, I, I think your 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 description of the problem and your inspiration to address it uh, through conversation and grassroots activities and, and, and empathetic leadership is, is the right way to go. And I think you've you've shared so many insights with us. I hope we'll be able to have you back on soon to talk about uh, the, this in more detail. Thank you for joining us, Steve. My really uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my ideas. Well, we're, we're fortunate to, to, to have them. And Zachary, we are, as always, fortunate to have your poetry and your insights as well. Uh, our dark moments, and these are dark moments, also open up possibilities for new, new streams of light. And I hope we've, we've been able to think about that usefully here. 
Thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.